If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35, where you'll find the text printed in the bulletin, a bulletin insert. As you might expect, Barry was supposed to preach today, uh, but with him being sick, I stepped in to preach in his absence. Uh, I am preaching the same passage that he had chosen, uh, but a different sermon, obviously. Uh, I did read his sermon, uh, and so some of his ideas may filter their way into this sermon a little bit, uh, but it is uh, a different sermon, uh, as tempting as it might have been to preach his sermon. With that being said, uh, let me pray before I read our passage. Gracious God, you told us that all scripture is breathed out by you and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Lord, would you send your spirit, would you teach us through your word. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. Lord, sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word, Isaiah chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with a recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and, the, and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Have you ever encountered something and immediately thought, that it does not belong there. That's so out of place. Perhaps it's the ending of a novel that you did not see coming and thought, whoa, that doesn't seem like it fits here. Maybe it's a plot twist in a movie or a television show and you're just shocked. That came out of left field almost. Or perhaps it's a building out in the middle of nowhere and you're thinking, what in the world is that doing here? Growing up, my dad pastored a small church in Landrum, South Carolina, and we lived in Greenville, so it was about a 30, 35-minute drive to Landrum. And at one point, something started being built on a big piece of property. 
And we weren't really sure what it was. It was massive. Uh, and after a while, it took several years to build it. We discovered it's a house. And it's a mansion of sorts. It kind of looks like a castle uh, with each side having these like octagonal shaped sections and almost like turrets on the top. I uh, looked it up on Zillow last night and found it, and it's over 5,000 square feet, and just seems really out of place. It looks like nothing around it. And friends, the same is true of the passage before us today. It just seems like it doesn't fit, it doesn't belong. Isaiah prophesied primarily to the southern kingdom of Judah probably between the years 740 and 700 B.C. And he rebuked the people for the ways that they had abandoned the Lord. And he proclaimed destruction was coming if they did not repent and return to the Lord. Chapters 28 to 35 kind of fit together. And they're prophecies of woe against any who do not trust in the Lord. You see, things are bleak for God's people Assyria is coming to attack. The people are tempted to turn to Egypt for help, and God says, no, don't go there. Trust me instead. And yet here in our passage, we find unexpected joy. If you're reading through the book of Isaiah for the first time, and you come to this chapter, you'd be tempted to think, what is this doing here? This belongs at the end of the book, not here in the middle. It just doesn't seem that joy would be found right here. And perhaps that's exactly where you are in the midst of your life. You can't fathom joy based on what's going on in your life. Or maybe you're just overflowing with joy because God has been so good to you. Or maybe you're like most of us, you're somewhere in between. Wherever you are, I want you to see from this passage God's unexpected joy. In order for us to understand this better from this text, I want to unpack three truths about joy. First, the arrival of joy. Second, the impact of joy. And third, the eternality of joy. So first, the arrival of joy. And we find this in verses 1 through 4. Isaiah begins, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. You see, in just a verse and a half, we find either joy or rejoice three times. And in all ten verses, we find those words six times. And when a theme is repeated that frequently in such a short space, Scripture is begging us to pay attention. Don't miss the arrival of joy. And remember, this is unexpected. The circumstances for God's people are not good. But God is good. And joy arrives. Isaiah says that the wilderness shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice, they will blossom abundantly. It's not hard for us to kind of get a mental picture of what Isaiah is describing. A barren wasteland, a desert, that's not where you would expect the crocus to blossom abundantly, to see just an abundance of flowers. Well, what is Isaiah trying to communicate? <coughs> what exactly is the fulfillment of this prophecy? Well, we must understand that Old Testament prophecy almost always has an immediate fulfillment and a future one. 
The immediate is always lesser and points forward to the future, which is greater. Given the context, Isaiah is basically saying, friends, take heart. Yes, judgment is coming. Yes, you will be invaded. Jerusalem will be destroyed. The temple will be torn down. But God will not abandon you. He will bring you back, and he will restore the blessings of Judah. And God does this. He brings the people back from captivity out of Babylon. That's the immediate fulfillment, and it's great. But it points forward to a greater work of the Lord. You see, the prophecy here in Isaiah 35 is really all about Jesus. Now I know his name is not found once in these ten verses. But with his coming, the barren land is made lush and full. This doesn't happen physically, but rather spiritually. But remember, just because something is spiritual doesn't mean it's any less real. At the end of verse 2, Isaiah proclaims, They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Where do we see the glory of the Lord when Christ bursts onto the scenes at his birth? Think about when the angels come to the shepherds. Luke chapter 2, verse 9 says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. God's glory was on full display the night Christ was born. In Jesus, we have seen the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, as John tells us in the first chapter of his gospel. I particularly love how the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, where he says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, in Christ we find the glory of God, and in Him we find an abundance of joy. Christian joy is not the same thing as happiness. You can have joy and still be full of sorrow. No, joy is true contentment rooted in God's sovereign control of the universe. This means that joy is not tied to our circumstances or to people or to possessions. Here at Christmas, it's easy to look for joy in circumstances and people and possessions. A couple of years ago, I got a flyer in the mail from Target, and it had all sorts of toys on it, like good toys for kids. You know, for older kids, there was an Xbox, there was one of those like you know, four-wheel vehicles, you know, the big ones for, for kids to ride, like a John Deere tractor type thing. There were Legos and dolls, all sorts of stuff. And at the very top, in big, bold red letters, found the words, Joy Makers. Think about that for a minute. Really? Toys? Joy makers? Yeah, how often do we fall into thinking that if we get just that right present for Christmas, man, we'll be full of joy. Perhaps we impart that to our children even unknowingly. We might be tempted to think that if things go just right and just the right people are here to celebrate with us, then man, this Christmas will bring lots of joy. Friends, that might be wishful thinking, but at the end of the day, it's empty. 
What happens when you get sick and you can't celebrate like you'd like? What happens when you've just lost a spouse or a parent? What happens with the flood of grief that you just can't seem to move past? What happens if you just lost your job? Or your boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with you? Or you had another miscarriage? What then? Where's the joy? Circumstances, possessions, and people won't bring joy. But God, through Jesus Christ, will. Verse 4 says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. The word anxious can also be translated hasty of heart. And one commentator says, The hasty of heart are those who in their inmost thoughts are impatient with the apparent delay in God's fulfillment of his promises. They would hasten along the work of God and that they think in their heart that he is too slow and that he delays his redemption. Isaiah is building anticipation and expectation for God to work, but the people have to wait, and so do we. Kids, is it hard to wait for Christmas? Is it hard to wait to open those presents under the tree? You're just ready to tear into them, but you have to wait, right? It's hard. The people in Judah had to wait too, waiting for God to work. Yet to the anxious and hasty in heart, Isaiah says, Behold your God. Look, he will work. Standing where we do in redemptive history, we have seen God work. That's what Christmas is all about. He's here. Don't miss him. Look to Jesus. Stand amazed at what God has done through his son. God sent him at just the right time. I'm sure many of God's people would have thought, Lord, where's the Messiah? Hurry up and act. But God sent Jesus just when he wanted. As Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Isaiah says, He will come and save you. In the Lord Jesus, this promise finds fulfillment. And as in Matthew 1.21, the angel tells Joseph about Mary. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The message of Christmas is that Jesus came to save. He came to save us from our sins. His work may not be exactly what you're expecting. It may not be in the timing that you would like it to be. But God offers true joy in the person and work of his son. Do you believe that? I pray you do. That's the arrival of joy. But Isaiah goes on in verses 5 through 7 to talk about the impact of joy. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. It's tempting for us to get caught up in the specifics of what Isaiah describes. These are miraculous healings. And certainly Jesus fulfilled this, for he healed many. He made the blind see. 
the lame walk, the deaf hear. He shouted, Lazarus, come out. And a dead man got up and walked out of the tomb. Jesus did amazing miracles on earth, and praise be to God. But what Isaiah is talking about here is the big picture. He's talking about the radical change that the coming Messiah will bring to the world. That things will be turned upside down. Nothing will look the same. And it's for good in the best possible way. Jesus himself alluded to these words in Luke chapter 7. John the Baptist is in prison and he sends some of his disciples to Jesus and tells them, ask this question, are you the one or should we look for another? In other words, are you the Messiah, or should we move on to look for somebody else? And Jesus responds in Luke seven twenty two: Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. Jesus understood that this passage was all about him, and that he fulfilled it. Isaiah describes the work of the Messiah in a further and more clear way in chapter 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to all who mourn to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he goes into a synagogue and he reads the first part of these words, and then he rolls up the scroll and he says, Today, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, we don't want to miss the point. Jesus didn't come to primarily bring physical hearing, healing. He didn't come with a ministry of social justice to end oppression. That's a misunderstanding of this passage. Notice what Isaiah says, that Jesus proclaims this. Jesus' ministry was one of preaching. He proclaimed good news to sinners. He preached salvation. This means that the impact of joy that Jesus brings to you and me is spiritual rather than physical. Jesus didn't come to break down social structures. He didn't come to make your life better. No, he came to save you from your sins. This means that your greatest need is not external, but internal. Your biggest problem is not your in-laws or your boss or disease or death. No, your biggest problem is the sin in your heart. And my biggest problem is the sin in my heart. And that is what Jesus came to remedy. That's the impact of joy. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the good news of the gospel. The hymn writer Charles Wesley describes these verses in his hymn, O for a thousand tongues to sing, with these words, Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. 
You blind behold your Savior come and leap ye lame for joy. Have you experienced this joy? The joy of salvation? If not, then come to Jesus today. Put your faith in him. Eternity is at stake. Don't wait another day. We've seen the arrival of joy, the impact of joy, and now lastly, the eternality of joy. We find this in verses 8 through 10. Isaiah begins by saying, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Isaiah is telling us that barren nature of the wilderness will be no more, but then he goes further to describe a highway upon which God's people can travel. Think about the image Isaiah is using here for a minute. A highway in a desert. Remember, at this time, roads were not paved. So roads in the desert would be hard to find. If a sandstorm came, the road would be covered up or maybe even moved. But God promises a highway in the desert, an interstate. Not a literal physical highway, not a dark desert highway and there isn't cool wind in your hair. Rather, this is a spiritual highway. And Isaiah calls it a way of holiness. What is this way? What is this highway? It's none other than the Lord Jesus. Think about our Savior's words in John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I can't help but wonder if Jesus had the words of Isaiah 35 on his mind when he proclaimed those words to his disciples in the upper room. Friends, we must not miss the powerful promise God is making here. So many in this world wander aimlessly in life. They seek to be good and think that if God exists, surely he'll let them into heaven for being a good person. Seven-time Tour de France winner Lance Armstrong is kind of an infamous character. He's been stripped of those titles for doping and banned from cycling for life. He also battled cancer and legitimately thought that he was going to die. And reflecting on that time, he says these words. Quite simply, I believe I had a responsibility to be a good person. And that meant fair, honest, hardworking, and honorable. If I did that, if I was good to my family, true to my friends... If I gave back to my community or to some cause, if I wasn't a liar, a cheat, or a thief, then I believe that should be enough. At the end of the day, if there was indeed somebody or some presence standing there to judge me, I hope I would, not, I would be judged on whether I had lived a true life, not on whether I believed in a certain book or whether I had been baptized. If there was indeed a God at the end of my days, I hoped he didn't say, but you were never a Christian. So you're going the other way from heaven. If so, I was going to reply, you know what? You're right. Fine. How sad. Yet so many today are like that. They think that if God exists, surely he'll let them in as long as their good deeds outweigh their bad. Perhaps that's what you believe. But that's not what scripture teaches. Jesus says in Matthew 7, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Many wander aimlessly, but Jesus offers a certain and sure road to God. It's perfect. It will get you there. And we know that because Jesus says in John 6, no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. Isaiah 35 ends with two verses with grandiose promises. We see there will be no lion or ravenous beast. And then in verse 10, we read this. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Perhaps you heard those words and thought, John, that sounds great. But it sounds like nothing today. I thought this prophecy was fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. Why is the world so bad today? Well, the answer is simple, kind of. Yes, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy in all of the prophecies. But we won't fully experience these blessings until the new heavens and the new earth. You see, we live in what's called the already but not yet. Some of the benefits upon Christ's arrival we see now, but ultimately we will experience them when Christ returns. And when he does, he will wipe away every tear, he will right every wrong. All the evil and suffering and sadness will be no more. As a result, those who are in Christ will have eternal joy. It will not end. No one will be able to take it away. But for now, we wait, we wait with expectation and anticipation. We sing this time of year, Come thou long expected Jesus. In the Old Testament, they waited for Christ's first coming. Now we wait for his second coming. So we pray with John at the end of Revelation, Come, Lord Jesus. As we close, remember that God brings unexpected joy. So we begin this week of Christmas. Don't settle for little joys. Don't look to circumstances or people or possessions or presents to bring you joy. Instead, look to Jesus. He brings ultimate joy. The birth of Christ some 2,000 years ago brought unexpected joy. And that same joy is offered to you and to me today. The only question is, will you take it? Will you trust God to give you unexpected joy no matter what is going on in your life? If you do, no matter what tomorrow brings, no matter what next year holds, you will be just fine. Let us pray.